Hey, folks, I know there are lots of business owners who listen to this show. Maybe some of you never planned on running a business, but now here you are. One thing you've always got to keep in mind is how much you're spending on your operating costs. That's one of the first things we had to keep in mind with WTF. And with things costing more today than they did when we started, you want to keep your expenses down. To reduce costs and headaches, be smart and use NetSuite by Oracle, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. Reduce IT costs, cut the costs of maintaining multiple systems, improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash WTF for more. That's netsuite, N-E-T-S-U-I-T-E dot com slash WTF. All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fucksters? What's happening? I'm Mark Marin. This is my podcast. My, my voice sounds strong today. I can hear it in my head right now as I'm talking to you. I can hear it in my cans. Sounds strong. I don't know. Maybe I'm well-rested. How are you doing? I, I want to feel like things are shifting, like things are changing, like we're moving in the right direction. Perhaps we are, but not a lot has changed really. I think the vaccination news and the sort of momentum of all that has made me feel like uh, things are, are heading in the right direction and might be okay-ish at some point in the future. They might be okay-ish. Things might be okay-ish. But I, my fear is that it's not a real okay. It's not a real okay-ish. It's a, uh, it's a, a mythic, a mythological, a delusional okay-ish. But I don't know. I, I'm feeling like a little better. For, for what, though? For what happens now? What happens all, after all this? How you holding up? You all right? Lorraine Newman is on the show today. She is, uh, as you know, uh, an, an original cast member of SNL, one of the in the first crew. But she's also, you may not know, one of the uh, most prolific voice actors working for the past several decades. And she's got a new memoir out in audiobook form, only in audiobook form. So I don't know what we're heading into. I, I just don't know. I, I'm trying to think of the lessons I learned. I've got to start thinking about what I'm thinking about, right? Which is antithetical to uh, the meditation practice I've put into place. You don't want to think about what you're thinking about. You don't want to think at all. You just want to breathe. And now I want to think about what I'm thinking about, getting it into context, re- corralling it, take, making some shapes out of it, twisting it into things. It's been a long fucking year. But I talked to uh, the guy at the place, and we might be doing stand-up again at some point soon, inside, workshop, mode. I've been offered a lot of uh, shows around town, around here, to do uh, parking lots, spaces in between buildings, heated um, outdoor uh, situations with chairs set up, a theater in the round in between buildings somewhere. And I won't do it. And it's not that... It's not, well, I don't know. It might be that I'm not compelled. But I, if I know me, what am I going to bring to it? If people are going to pay for a show and it's, it's outdoors and it's being presented as a show, I've been in this situation, this lockdown, this grief, and this uh, 
just sort of uh, trying to maintain sanity mode. Well, I'm just going to hop up on stage and have an act. I don't want to workshop in front of uh, people that are desperate and paid to sit outside under heat lamps. I need to get back into the clubs. I need to get back into the filth. I need to get back into the dark. I need to get back into the low ceiling sort of uh, tide pool of uh, comedy and work out where I'm coming from. So I'm waiting for that. And if that doesn't work out, well, fuck, I'm over it. Onward and upward. I'm not going to Turkey. I got some flack. I got some flack about asking questions of Hugh Grant about Turkey. A little bit of flack, but it was specifically, it was of a specific nature, and I'd like to address it. If you recall, and that Hugh Grant, man, people love that Hugh Grant. That interview is like a fucking comedy album. I think that's going to get several listens by people. I guess I laughed a lot. Sometimes I don't remember until I'm reminded when people tweet about it or email me about it. They say I might have laughed more than I've ever laughed. I don't know. It caught me off guard. But as you know, I was asking him about Turkey. He was shooting in Turkey. And I was like, and I was surprised to hear that he vacationed in Turkey. Because Europeans and people from other parts of the world vacation in different parts of the world than we do here. Because they're closer. We've got this humongous country, for better or for worse. And we have proximity to a few places. But I mean, it's a lot easier to vacation in Turkey from England than it is from here. But nonetheless, I want to address the criticism because I think there's some truth to it in that I just got a couple of emails of people saying like your attitude about Turkey and your and your feelings about it somehow implied that I, I was judging the people of Turkey. And I'm not. I just, from what I understand and from not having traveled there ever in my life, but in recent years, what I've grown to understand is that it is under an authoritarian government. Erdogan, the, the, the guy in charge over there, is a little dictator, not a decent dude. And when I hear authoritarian, and when I hear authoritarian country, and I hear and see what happens there, and also you know the denial of the Armenian genocide and other things, what I'm judging is the government. I'm not judging the people. I'm apprehensive about going to an authoritarian country to visit. I'd like to go to Russia. I'm not going to go to Russia because it creeps me out. But that's what I'm reacting to. I'm not reacting to the, the cultural difference, I'm not reacting to the food or the color of the people's skins or the rituals or the customs or the shops or the streets or how people greet each other or, or the nature of the humility and humanity of the Turkish people. I'm reacting to the fact that it's an authoritarian dictatorship in charge of the place and that makes me uncomfortable. So, you know, don't judge me as some sort of American exceptionalist. I'm sorry. I don't want to go to an authoritarian country because it makes me nervous. I don't want to fucking go to Missouri because of similar reasons. So I just wanted to clear that up. That uh, I'm, it's not. It's sort of like, well, come on, you know, have a have a skewer. Yeah, but it's like there's it's authoritarian. Yeah, but the people are nice. Yeah, but the guys, you're under the boot of of dictatorship. Yeah, but it's nice here. You go to the beach and are there beaches there? Granted, I don't know some things. But uh, but that's really what I was reacting to. I'm afraid to go to Arkansas, let alone Turkey. And it's not a it's it's not it has nothing to do with it being a foreign country. It's right here. I barely want to go to Michigan. Might be now I'm just going overboard. There's good people everywhere. I dig it. 
but it's the nature of the bad people and how emboldened they may be and what their reaction to me might be it sometimes causes me some anxiety and some fear is it worth it to go to the shops and do the dances and eat the food if you're going to be singled out as as an enemy of the people right and god knows there's a lot of exotic dances in michigan look lorraine newman is uh, as i said earlier an original cast member of SNL. Her new memoir is called May You Live in Interesting Times. It's available exclusively on Audible as an audiobook. Uh, so go to audible.com or the Audible app to check it out. And this is me uh, chatting with Lorraine New. Sometimes I wish I paid more attention in school or in some cases, any attention at all. There are probably a lot of things I could have gotten more out of, like literature. And now it's probably not in the cards to go back to school and study the classics. But luckily for us, there's a new podcast called The Foxed Page that dives deep into the best books of all time. This is basically like the best possible college English class, but more relaxed and fun. No pressure of grades or needing to prepare something to say in class. It's only the books you want to read and know about presented by best-selling author Kimberly Ford. Everything from Cormac McCarthy to Madame Bovary, from classics like Frankenstein to modern hits like Lessons in Chemistry. I love Ireland, but I missed the boat on James Joyce. The Foxed Page has a three-part series on Dubliners, and that's a pretty great starting point. Want to get the most out of what you read? The Foxed Page is for you. Get it now wherever you get your podcasts. Men. I can't remember where the title of this book comes from. May you live in interesting times. Who said that originally? Well, it's supposedly a Chinese curse, but I looked it up and it actually isn't. Um, somebody kind of ascribed it as being one, but it actually is not. But I still feel that I've lived in interesting times, so I thought that would be a good title. No, it's a good title, but it sounds like one of those things like it could be a Jewish proverb, it could be a Chinese a proverb, a curse. Yeah, May it's you a live curse. In, it is? Yeah. Well, then we're all fucked. Yeah. <laughs> we're, in, we're in trouble, the lot of us. Have we started? Sure. Okay. Well, not? I chose what? it because I felt that I was like in f the front row for a lot of cultural events in our country. Yeah. And so that qualified as interesting times. There was just so many kind of uh, six degrees of everything you can think of from when I was little to now. No, no doubt. I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, you're just, I think you're a little older than me. So you, yes, got to, you, got, you got to hit it all head on. You know, we, my generation just caught this sort of breaking of the wave. You guys were surfing the garbage back in the day. <laughs> Why, thank you. <laughs> well, you know, um, it's, my sister was and still is a musician. She also became a comedy writer, but um, she was in the New Christie Minstrels. This is the 50s. Hold you know? on a second. So where did you grow up? Here, I grew right? up in Westwood, California. Your yeah. whole life? And your folks well, are from we here? Well, we moved. My my mom, my dad's from here. My mom's from Ohio. But um, are you Jewish? Yeah, I am Jewish. And we moved um, to Beverly Hills when my brother, my twin brother, and I were eleven. So you have a twin brother and an older sister, and an older brother. Yeah, and an older brother. 
Yeah. So the whole Jewish clan moves. Your dad, your mom's from Ohio. Your dad's from here. Yeah. So what did he do, the old man? Well, the old man uh, passed the bar in Arizona, and then World hmm. War II happened. Yeah. So he was in Air Force Intelligence. Really? And uh, came back, and my grandpa had started a quilting business in Los Angeles. A quilting business. Um, what does yeah. that mean? Like so, a like a they fabric? manufactured yeah they manufactured bolts of quilted material that people would make bathrobes and bedspreads and what is it with jackets and, and, and fabric? I the garment schmata. right? I don't. <laughs> yes. it's, it's so wild. That, I know. I don't know what the history of that is, but like my mother's boyfriend's in fabrics, but you know schmatas are different. That's knockoff dresses, but like just to be like we're going to make quilted. Everyone needs this. So we're yeah, going to make Yeah, but it. they do. That's exactly, I mean, that was like, um, you know, the base ingredient for everything else. Sure. Quilted fabric. It is. It, it, you got it. You need it. And here's another interesting fact, Mark. Yes, yes. My father then created a business called American Bonded Fiber, which was just the fiber fill for the quilts. <laughs> Wait a minute. So he comes home from the war. His father's got this thing going this quilt business got a, a factory where in downtown somewhere exactly so yes, they, downtown they go he says come on kid you know you're you're part of it now this is my business now it's your business and your dad's like why don't we make the inside of it too so yeah he, exactly so he you're does right. that's that's absolutely right i mean they were cattle ranchers come they on were cattle merchants in arizona your dad your grandfather my grandpa and um yeah cattle merchants jewish cattle merchants that's right. Jewish cowboys. Can we call them cowboys? Jewish cowboys? They, they were. I mean, my dad had his own horse. Okay. Um, right, he talks then. about, he told me about cattle drives that they used to do when they were in Los Angeles. They would do a cattle drive out to Calabasas. Through the garment district? <laughs> the this, garment was, district? this was when he was a kid. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Oh, Calabasas. I was just out in yeah. Calabasas. And I was just thinking, you know, how funny a cattle drive to where the weekend lives in Kim Kardashian. <laughs> Is that weird though? The Calabasas, I just drove through the other day. We took a ride out to the beach for, you know, to blow off, you know, a little COVID steam, some uh, play quarantine steam. We went down to Leo Carrillo Beach. Oh, that's such a beautiful beach. Yeah, it's nice, a little cute. It's like, I it, love that it's one. It's one little chunk of uh, area where there's like, there's rocks and there's a tunnel. But, you know, it's, yeah. only, it's, like, a, <laughs> it's like a quarter it's of a mile. Clean. Yeah, it's clean. Right, it's very, the true. sand is really clean. There's big starfish there. Big starfish on the rocks. I, did not know that. That's true. That's true, Johnny. So <laughs> thank you, <laughs> thank you. Oh my God, it's so good to be with someone like you. <laughs> so oh, but Calabasas, right? It's so pretty. But that's what it was. It was cattle farms. It must have been cattle farms. Calabasas, yeah. yeah. It was all rural. You know, right. you know that because you see, you know, there's still horses down there. People still exactly. have horses. Where that's do you right. live? I live in Century City now because I'm an old Jew. Century City in one of the big buildings? No, I'm in a very modest one, but it's uh, I'm located in kind of what I like to call the Holy Trinity because uh-huh. I've got Walgreens, the gas station, <laughs> and Century City shopping <laughs> mall. I, yeah, I'm I, I'm oh. I'm like right there with you. I I live in Glendale, and I'm like mm-hmm. four blocks from the Walgreens, from the Trader Joe's, five minutes to Whole Foods, five minutes to Vaughn's. I got a fish market, five minutes. And that, that's oh, the that's most beautiful. important. Yeah, most important thing. People are like, I, I've talked to people, I'm, I've thought about like, well, maybe I'll get a, a little cabin somewhere or maybe go back to New Mexico. I'm like, but I got Walgreens, it's right there. Yeah, I know what you mean. I um, I sold my house that was near where I am now. Mm. 
um, when I got a divorce. And uh, How I thought been? I could afford a house. Uh, we were together 25 years. Chad Einbinder, one of the funniest people I've ever known. Was Great he a, guy. a professional funny guy? Uh, he was for a while, but then he became a commercial director. Oh. Uh, but he, uh, you know, we sold the house, we yeah. split it. And then I was thinking, you know, Italy is going to coming to Century City. I got to stay in the area. That's what kept <laughs> Just you there. Because of Italy, I swear to God. And now Just we can't even of go. That. I know. Well, you can order from there. Italy's the best. It's Disneyland, I'm telling you. I, Disney, yeah, it's Disneyland for like, you know, heart disease. <laughs> but I, uh, okay. well, what you were going to say, where we started with this was we we're talking about uh, living in interesting times and where that sort of started for you. And we were about mm-hmm. talking, we were talking about your sister's uh, uh, involvement in show business. So yes. basically you said she was in a group in the fifties. How much older no, is she? Then? This was the sixties. She's 60s. nine years older. And uh, she was in the new Christy minstrels. Her boyfriend was Barry McGuire. <laughs> Barry McGuire. It, it was folk. Yeah. It's yeah, folk yeah. music. It's, it's like a mighty wind. That's no, exactly, yeah, exactly. What it was. That was popular at some point. Yeah, I had yeah, a cousin, my cousin Marsha and her husband Clark were Eugene Levy and Catherine O'Hara. They were <laughs> those right. people. Yeah. But, you know, we would have hoot nannies. At you the heard house? me, hoot nannies or at, at the, the farm. house. Where did, where? <laughs> this was in Westwood. Okay. And, you know, like Theodore Bikel and the Limelighters would come to these Theodore things. Theodore Bikel. Yes. It I was met that really, guy. Did you really? He used to date my first girlfriend's mother. In Westport, Connecticut. Wow. Yeah. Or I guess she was still living in Chappaqua. She was in theater, the mother was. And I met him once at a dinner and they were dating. And? You know, he was a, you know, he was a, well, he had a, a large Jewish presence. He yes. carried the weight of the people with him. You yeah. knew he was capable of singing all the songs. But the one thing I remember about him is that she had bought chicory because he liked chicory in his coffee. So that's that's a little something about Theodore Bikel. I'm not sure you knew. Well, uh-huh. I, I can't top that. Okay. But yeah, you can. He was at your house singing. He was at our, our house in our, our garage that was turned into a pool house. Because he was friends with your folks or with the sister? Uh, with my sister. I mean, you know, the event of the Hootenanny itself attracted a lot of folk singers. And it was just... You know, and I was listening to the local soul station, KGFJ, mm. and I didn't like folk music, but I really did appreciate the harmonies. Yeah. How old were you? I was like seven, eight, nine and when this, this was, was like, going on. Like, what, what? This is the late, mid-60s? What are we talking? The, yeah, the this is the mid, early to just mid? Just the beginning of the 60s. Yeah, because yeah. that's when that stuff was popular. That's before yeah. people woke up to the... Drug excitement. Exactly. But, you know, again, being in Los Angeles and the access to music yeah. was also something that I felt I, I had a front row seat f- for. I mean, I saw the Beatles twice. You and, did? Where? Yes, at the Hollywood Bowl and then at Dodger Stadium. When you were like 10? No, I was, uh, let's see, 64. I would have been 12. So you saw the Beatles when you were 12. Was, do you remember it? Yes. And, you know, I was so determined not to scream and cry. Yeah. So determined. <laughs> yeah. But I had these, you know, binoculars and I was looking at these guys who seemed mythical. Yeah, they were mythical. You know, with sweat pouring down their faces. And I absolutely lost it. And yeah. I was just part of the herd. Crying. Of screaming, crying chicks. 
You could feel it. Oh, you were totally 12. humiliating. No, you yeah. were 12. How is it humiliating when the entire audience is doing that? It's yeah. not humiliating if you're not alone crying and screaming. Thank you, Mark. Thank you. <laughs> but then, you know, there was a club called the Ash Grove, uh-huh. which is now the Improv. And really? the Ash Grove had, I was very much into the blues. And this was like when I was um, 16. Muddy Waters, Howlin' right. Wolf, Willie Dixon, Chicago All-Stars, T-Bone Walker, I think Taj, I Mahal. To Taj Mahal. I talked to Taj Mahal about that place. Did you really? Yes. Oh, my God. I was just I like, as you him. were saying that, I remember talking to a guest about it. Like, he was there a lot. Yes, he was. He was just, you know, it was thrilling to see him. Do you know Taj? I do not know him, but I did a cartoon with him. And also, when I was pregnant with my first daughter, I was hiking in Tree People Park. Mm. And he was with, I think, um, I think her name is, I'm not going to get it wrong, so I just won't say it, but she was in music. She did music scores for movies. Uh Uh And I'm, they're walking the other way, this guy that looks like Taj Mahal, and I'm thinking, how, it's, it's not possible. It's such a yuppie activity, hiking. Sure. You know, Uh, and in the book, I say it would be like seeing M&M at a wine tasting in Napa. So I just dismissed it. And then as I was coming back, I saw them again. And then I said, you know, I'm sorry, but you look so much like Taj Mahal. You were that person. You said that to him. I did. And he's, you know, and my dog's name was Rye Cooter. I was with my dog. Oh, don't tell Rye <laughs> that. <will you? laughs> so, yeah. But I did tell Taj Mahal that my dog's name was Rye Cooter, which he got a kick out of. <laughs> So Taj Mahal hikes. That's what we learned from that. It's not. It's not yes. just for yuppies. Taj Mahal is a man of the world and a man of world music. He has hiked many a mile. Taj Mahal. He has indeed. Yeah. And his, oh God. Deep you well. Know, that I know guy. That... Deep well. Yes, he is. Mm. Yeah. So all right. So you're wandering around. You're 12, 13, 14, hitting the rock scene. I'm going to see these bands. You know. And, Did you see the doors? Um, you saw the doors, didn't you? The doors played our high school. Come on. <laughs> and like, Three Dog Night played our high school. Well, that's not as impressive, but but uh, uh, <laughs> well, <laughs> but yeah, Three Dog yeah, Night. Yeah, the were doors a great played band. our high school. So wait, what high school was that? That was Beverly Hills High School, of course. And which what I others? try to keep on the DL, but oh, what other celebrity children were you going to school with? Um. Well. I don't know if people will know some of these people, That's, but they uh, will. I, my my audience is like us. Well, um, Louis Jordan's son Louis, yeah, went there. Um, Mel little Tolkien, Louis. little Louis, who, little Louis, Louis. <laughs> yeah. um, Mel Tolkien, who was one of the writers on your show of shows, his two sons, Michael and Stephen, went to Beverly, and I was friends with Stephen. Uh-huh. But you know, Michael, they both went on to be writers and directors. Uh-huh. Um, what about the what about the Einstein kids? Were they there? They had graduated uh, before me. I Albert Brooks. I and, missed uh, them. Oh, you did. Yeah, Rob and Albert had graduated after uh-huh. I came. Rob uh, Reiner. Rob Reiner. Okay. Yes. Yeah. But I did see Richard Dreyfuss in a high school production and never forgot him. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was like a summer production. It's like exactly he, the same. You're like, <laughs> who's that crazy Jew? What's he yeah. yelling about? He was good, man. I tell He's you, good. he He's had it. Good. Oh, I went to school with Monty Hall's kids. Richard oh, that guy. was in my class, and his sister, who is now Joanna Gleason. I interviewed Monty as an old man because his grandson, 
Joanna's son's a musician who ah. is a big fan of this show and was always on me to, you got to talk to my grandfather you know, before it's too late. And uh, I was like, okay, let's do it. That and, must have been so interesting. And yeah, I had to go over there and talk to him. And now I can't, like my brain is all weird. I, I can't remember a time before doing Zooms. I kept, tra- my memory has been boxed by Zoom. I'm picturing Monty Hall in the Zoom box, but I was there sitting in front of him. Uh-oh. It's weird. I was at his house. I got to say, my uh, older kid, um, Spike, went to school with Jake Reiner and Tracy Ullman's son, Johnny. Uh-huh. And Jake got Spike into a stand-up class at the Improv when they were 15. Mm. And Spike would not let me go to see them. So, you know, Carl and Rob and James L. Brooks would go see the, the shows that the kids put on. Uh-huh. And um, my kid was great. I mean, I, I hate to say it, but they were really great. And I would not have encouraged them if they weren't. But um, Did he stick you with know, it? Uh, yeah, they both did. Both kids are on HBO shows right now. Spike's still doing stand-up? Yeah. But Spike's also on Los Spookies. What's his last name? Einbinder. Spike Einbinder. Yeah, and Hannah Einbinder's on a HBO Max show that hasn't come out yet. That's your daughter? Everyone's in show business. I know. What the hell? Your sister's in show business. So moving on through all this through high school here and the young Richard Dreyfus, I just can imagine the intensity of a high school oh, Richard yeah. Dreyfus. Rabid. Yeah. That's what it is. Foaming at the mouth. right? But, you know, then Tracy moved to New York, and she was a folk singer, and then Ed McMahon spotted her and became her manager, and she got her own show. When was Ed McMahon in management? I know. I don't don't quite (laughs) get that. But um, she was on The Tonight Show, and she was an MC at places like The Bitter End and The Improv, and so... One year when I was about 14 and I was in this brace that went from my chin to my pelvis. Yeah, scoliosis. Um, exactly, yeah. I what, hated that, that word. You hate that word, but I mean, uh, that seemed to be more popular when you, with your generation, the scoliosis. I don't know, do you still see that stuff anymore? Yeah, it's just that the brace is not as obtrusive as it oh. is, was then. It was just a... I'm sorry oof. you had to go through that. How long did you have to wear that? Uh, two and a half years, oh but at least it was when I was a teenager and had cystic acne, oh. <laughs> so that was better. Yeah. Um, but you know, she had us come to the the at no the troubadour. Yeah. When I was fourteen, to see her friend Richard Pryor. Oh, over on who, uh, Sunset. At, Where is it? Santa on Monica. Santa Monica Santa Boulevard. Monica. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She was friends with all the comics. And that's where they worked before the clubs. They worked at yeah, music clubs. Yeah, I mean, clubs. you know how intimate the troubadour is. Yeah, there's like nobody. He And he was opening for a music act or no? No, he was by himself. He was pretty, I mean, he had been on Ed Sullivan at this point, but he still didn't have, you know, he wouldn't have been playing the forum at that point. So was he, was he the evolved prior or pre, you know, pre you know, prior? He was not the prior that was trying to be Bill Cosby. He was like coming oh, so into was, his own, right, talk about okay. his grandmother who would wallop him with a, yeah, a board yeah. that had holes in it for the meat to go through and stuff like that. So he was himself. So you saw prior young. Yeah. And another thing, and another thing, Mark. Yes, I'm here. I talk about, you know, the music that I was exposed to. But then when comedy started to be, have an explosion, mm. uh, I was there for that too. You know, um, I was in this improv workshop that eventually became the Groundlings. So you were there. You were a Groundling pre-Groundling. Yeah, I mean. Now wait, were you dating? Were you? Were you? 
what were you doing? Do you how what, were you uh, dating musicians? Who are you? What's going on? I dated musicians later. Oh, this was after SNL. I I had a relationship with Warren Zevon and with Mark Mothersbaugh. And, um, wow, you you picked the interesting ones. No, I not, know. Not, no boring uh, musicians for you. No, uh, and others. I just um, I'm kind of uh, shy to talk about that kind of stuff. So I really kind of talk about the other stuff that went on, you know, like I took Warren to see the, uh, the first Pee Wee Herman show at the Groundlings. The, uh, the, the beginning of Pee Wee. The very beginning, yeah, when he uh, used to throw Tootsie Rolls at the audience. And, and how did, how did uh, the, the cantankerous Warren Zevon respond? He loved it. Oh, good. He absolutely loved it. And afterwards, we went back to my house and I made dinner and there was something in the in Pee Wee's show about being a clean plate ranger where you uh -huh. had to clean your plate. Uh -huh. And he ate everything that I made. And yeah. I said, gee, I, I'm glad you liked it. And he said, well, Pee Wee says to be a clean plate ranger. <laughs> you know, he had a knife and fork holding him each and That's cute. the napkin tied around his neck. It was... It was very sweet. So after you saw, so prior, but that was, it was after you saw prior where the comedy started to happen. Yeah, I I went to uh, Paris. I studied with Marcel Marceau. You did mind and, training? Yeah. I did it since I was 16. Um, and then I also learned improv when I was 16. You didn't do mime in the brace though, did you? No. Okay. Uh, I had, I had. Post brace. <laughs> <laughs> There's a picture. Yeah, I, I, I never would, even thought about that. Oh, that yeah. would have been so good. Um, the mobility, still. Um, yeah. I learned improv and and mime, and so I auditioned for all the British theater schools, and I made the preliminary audition. Like out of three hundred people, they take eighty, uh -huh. and I made all those groups, and then I had to go to London for the final audition, uh -huh. and was summarily rejected. Uh, so I went to Paris to see if I could study with Marceau, and I ended up there for a year. What was he like? He was great. He was um, he was Hamish, Mark. He was very Hamish. Uh -huh. um, it's so funny, that movie that came out about him being uh, a resistance fighter. Yeah. I had no idea. There was no inkling of that when he was there. But he didn't teach that often. Frankly, it was his hot Czechoslovakian wife that did a lot of the teaching at the time. And he just sat there silently making expressions? <sighs> How did you know? <laughs> <laughs> um, but I came back from that and just was like, what the fuck am I going to do? Mime had turned into something that was so cutesy, which I hated. That's a nice word you for know? it. It was just, you, it, yeah, it didn't... Uh, it was whimsical, and I, I don't like whimsy. It's not for me. Yeah, it was like it was like hackneyed boardwalk entertainment. Yeah, so I kind of abandoned that. I a friend of mine asked me to be his audition partner for Cal Arts, uh -huh. so I said, "What the hell?" And after that, they asked me to join. So I thought, "Well, I'm not doing anything else." You went to Cal Arts. I went to Cal Arts for three months, um, which is where I met Paul Rubens. Oh, really? Yeah, I met him there. So many people have gone there. It's kind of crazy. Where's that? Where's that? Like out in Selmar or something? Where's it's Cal in Valencia. Valencia. Yeah, I mean, I've talked to so many people that have gone to Cal Arts. I can't even remember them all now. It was an amazing campus, but I I realized then that I did not want to be an actor, and they were teaching. It was a theater program, and I didn't feel comfortable doing that. I I felt more comfortable doing stuff that I wrote. Yeah, because I didn't feel like I had the range to do 
other really? stuff. Right. Yeah. yeah. So you tried, but you couldn't. I just couldn't do it. I didn't want. Uh, I didn't want to reveal myself in that way, which is pretty much the criteria for being an actor. Right. And so, and, and it's also like it, it seems to have stuck with you with your weird habit to drop into different voices must not yes. reveal yourself. So it's glad that you found your own device of avoidance that has been okay. helpful to you. All right. Confront me, Mark. That's what this is about, <laughs> isn't it? Uh, so where was I? But I digress. Uh-huh. Um, anyway, you so know, you were started... there for three months and you wanted to do your own writing. Yeah. And my sister was in this improv workshop hmm. and she said, why don't you come to this? You where know? was that at? That was at the Cellar Theater on Vermont, which I'm sure isn't there anymore. But it was run by this guy named Gary Austin. Mm. And the people in it were like Jack Sue, Pat Morita, yeah. Valerie Curtin, wow. Tim Matheson. Just, you know, people who were just interested in the craft. and Of being funny. Yeah. yeah. And we moved from there to the Oxford Theater. And started doing shows, and then we thought, well, we got to pick a name. Yeah. So we picked the Groundlings. And How'd you pick that name? It's a Shakespearean term okay. for people who couldn't afford real seats. Oh, I didn't so know that. So they had to sit on the ground. I'm sure so many people were like, come on, Marin, you should have known. <laughs> so you were not, you were a founding member. Yes. That's yeah. crazy. I know. Well, that's why I say I lived in interesting times. I was there for the opening of the comedy store. In 72? Uh, was it? Yeah. And did you read Cliff Nestroff's book? Yeah. I just talked to Cliff today. I love that guy. I I loved his book so much. It's dedicated to me. It is? Yeah. I got to go look at that again. I don't remember that. At the very beginning. That's wonderful. So for Mark M., I had him on this show early on that's incredible i was so into his writing and he was up in canada and uh and i kind of introduced him to the world down here a little bit he just texted me he's got a new book out about native american comics so 19 so the opening of the yeah, comedy so store? it was the opening of the comedy store and i was underage so i couldn't go in but i watched everything from the doorway and I, you know, saw the Step Brothers, which was Craig T. Nelson, yeah. Barry Levinson, yeah. and I think Rudy DeLuca. Right. I saw Ed Bagley Jr. dressed as a cop. Yeah. Uh, and uh, let's see, Freddie Prinz, I saw Jay Leno when he had long black hair, and he would pull it to the front, uh-huh. put it in a ponytail, and do Elvis. <laughs> and it was yeah. a silent bit where he just did kind of the pose and the lip and the ponytail would like flap like a metronome. It was so funny. Huh. And um, and I saw Richard Pryor try out a lot of material that he didn't use. Yeah, he used to go on for hours there sometimes. And someone, I think Ken Shapiro made Tunnel Vision, which I was in, and so was Chevy, and so were Franken and Davis. And this was before SNL. And that was out here, some weird. That was uh, here, yeah. Experimental in indie movie. Mm-hmm. So the Groundlings. Now, what it's become? Like, the, uh, do you like? I imagine that once you got left it, or once you named it, it didn't have all these tiers and classes, and it wasn't some sort of. You know, no. when did it evolve into this, you know, training ground that was so high? Like, it's weird. I guess that was the business model. Who made it a business? Tom Maxwell, uh-huh. who was a student when I was there. Mm. Uh, but he p- became a director and a really good one and a really funny guy. And, you know, he became a showrunner. I think he, he did just shoot me. A lot of the people that 
uh, were subsequent to me became showrunners on different shows. The smart ones. They, uh, yeah, they, they, I mean, it's it's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I get to see a lot of the people developing and then going on to being on SNL, which right. is thrilling to me. I just love it. The showrunners, though, they're like, you know, oh, you guys know how to make this a real job. God damn it. Yeah. <laughs> when did your sister start writing comedy? How did that happen? It was after The Groundlings. She was a director there for many years and a teacher. Oh, really? So she stopped playing folk music? Oh, God, yeah. Yeah, she... When folk died, she got out? <laughs> That's yeah. right. My sister has really been, like, the instigator for a lot of the transitions that I've made because she was there first. She's always been on the cusp of something that's about to happen. Uh-huh. You know, hence the groundlings. But she went on to um, write on Cheers and uh, The Nanny, tons of shows. She was one of the four Emmy-winning writers on the Ellen DeGeneres coming out episode. Oh, wow. Did she become uh, a showrunner? Yeah. Which yeah, one did she, she run? Okay. She and her partner created According to Jim. Now, um, so my sister created a show for John's brother. Right. Which wow. I also love, the, the she know synchronicity of all that. No, she That's, never met him. So years later she did that, well, years after John's gone. Yeah. When do you go to New York? When did, how does that happen? Lorne Michaels was producing Lily Tomlin's special, and he came to the Groundlings, and they hired me for that show, and then Lorne came back, and I was doing new material and different characters, and he had me meet him at the Chateau Marmont to talk about this show that he was hired to do. So he comes out. You work on Lily's show? I work on Lily's show, and then um, he comes to see me again, and, and he hires me for SNL. So I didn't really audition. What characters were you doing at that point? Did any of them make it onto the first season? Yes. Uh, Sherry the stewardess, who's the valley girl, was... That whole monologue in the Godfather group therapy sketch is, is a monologue that I wrote for... Um, the Groundlings. Wow. And um, there was another character that I, you know, <laughs> talk about this a lot, how I wanted to dazzle people with my, <laughs> with my, uh, how prolific I was with characters. And, you know, it's important to repeat characters. Kids, if I tell you nothing else, it's important to repeat characters. But um, Once you've built them, you mean? Use them yeah. as much as possible? Yeah. So they're remembered. But, yeah. Um, the only one I didn't do was this British groupie named Fiona. I never had occasion to do her. That's a character that you had and it never it never made it onto the show? No, I never saw a place for it. And you've never used it for a voice for anything else? I have. We did a birthday party for Mindy Sterling. The Groundlings did a birthday party for her at the Roosevelt Hotel. Uh-huh. And we did kind of um, a parody of um, American Idol. Uh-huh. So I played this kind of... Uh, one of the judges, you know, who right. my fame was like, you know, I was inspiring a lot of musicians I was with. You know, basically there was a song written about me called uh, China Pearls. And uh, sometimes people call me the white man's burden. I don't know why. But <laughs> stuff like that, you know. Yeah, ah, yeah. God. You got to use it. Yeah, I got to use it in various things. And also in animation. I've I've been so thrilled that British productions hire me sometimes to... Why well, it's like you're one of those people where I mean I'd see you around at festivals and you know we've run into each other and, and communicated 
uh, here and there over the years. But it seems like you're constantly doing voices for for animation. Yeah. And um, I I just, you know, I, I don't know how corny this might sound, but I have always been passionate about comedy. And so I've always stayed in it and wanting to see it, seeing new comedy, you know. I'm on the board at Sketchfest, but I even, you know, when my kids were, didn't need me to like ride them to do their homework, right. I started going to places like Meltdown and, you oh, know, right. That's, yeah, uh, seeing around. all these people, you, just you know, because like I just like it. So what was the first season in the first season? Because I've talked to, I've talked to most people. I don't, whoever, I, that's not even true. I've not talked to hardly anybody. Who'd I talk to? I've talked to Garrett. I've talked to uh, Al. Uh, oh, okay. I've talked to Lorne. I talked to Dan. Um, oh, that should have been interesting. Yeah, he's you know he's he's got a frequency he operates at. I love it. Yeah, I absolutely love it. When we did an episode of According to Jim together, and we were doing a speed through right before starting taping. Uh huh. And um, I think there was something where Danny was rattling something out of uh, off about guns. And Jim said, you really like that stuff, don't you? And Danny said, yeah, I have Asperger's. Yeah, yeah. And all of a sudden, it was like, wow, that that explains everything. <laughs> Jeez, yeah. it, you know, you play it back in your mind, of course he has Asperger's. That's wild when that happens, right? Oh, my God, yeah. But I always everything. loved his mind so much. I loved his style. I mean, everybody, that was what was so thrilling about SNL was that everybody really had an original voice. Yeah. And it was a great soup. Did you feel that right away? Because I remember talking to Garrett and, and Garrett was sort of like this outlier, uh, he felt, uh, in terms of where he came from and, and how and why he was cast. It seemed like it was a bit of a, a struggle to figure out how he fit in, uh, but eventually he landed. Um, sure. Well, he was hired as a writer. Right. But he was also like a straight actor. He was like, a he legit, was, he was the only one who had like seriously legit, you know, um, credits. But when did things get like, like at the beginning, how long did it take? Because I just watched that Belushi doc. Did you watch it? I loved it. It was good, right? I thought it was so good. And I I thought the device of not having us see the people that were talking, just hearing them, mm. and the animation mm -hmm. was so effective. And you I thought it, it. it rang true in terms of the parts that you were part of? Yeah. And it also revealed a side of John that I had no idea existed. Mm. You know, the letters to Judy and oh, yeah. his real knowledge of himself in, in the sense that he felt trapped by his addiction and didn't mm. really know how to get out of it. That it oh, was a it sort bad, of despair yeah. and helplessness. That's the worst. Which broke my heart. That's the worst. That's the real sickness. But yeah. he didn't have it when you knew him. Oh, yeah. Oh, he did? Yeah. It was always there, the, the appetite for it, but he didn't seem, did he seem lost when you knew him, though? No, it wasn't that. I mean, it was bad, but it wasn't as bad as it got later. Right. But he already, you know, this is the big misconception that I find when people trivialize people's lives and talk about how they couldn't handle the fame, man. Yeah, and that's yeah. why they get loaded, you know. Yeah. No, you're yeah. already an addict when you get yes, there. Yes, that's true. So um, it was just accessibility and money. That made it worse. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it was, Which is part of fame, but it's not the psychological 
ramifications of fame. It's just sort of like you can now do whatever you want. <laughs> yeah. Charming. <laughs> I know. He was a sweet guy. He really was. He was. Did you date him? I can't remember. No, no. He was, he was always with Judy. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, I didn't. I only dated Danny. I didn't date anybody else on the show. Oh, so that's and funny. Briefly, so, the, so the Asperger thing, you're like, okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, there was, a, I, I was always aware of a deep detachment on his part. Mm. So I never had much of an expectation of him. I just love spending time with him. And do you talk to anybody anymore? I probably talk to Alan Zweibel most frequently. Okay, he's the sweetest guy. He's so great and yeah. so funny. Yes. And, um, you know, every once in a while, uh, Bill Murray will text me out of the blue. You know, like, I'm fine, at right? this restaurant yeah. and there's this music playing, you know. Yeah, okay. yeah. One of those weird um, texts. I have people that do that. The, yeah. The, the big star text, you know, semi-annual big star text. It's weird. Hey, what's that uh, spice that you like that, you know, just something <laughs> weird, yeah. But I also have, you know, through Sketchfest and other things that I've done, become friends with Fred Armisen. Oh, yeah. So we we communicate every once in a while. But like Jane, nothing? No, you know, I I did write to her to ask questions because there was a, a day when the Stones were hosting and I I went to her dressing room, I can't remember why, and I opened the door and she's there in a beautiful bathrobe. Her hair is in curlers. She's smoking a cigarette and she is alone with Mick. Yeah. That's your memory. And that's that's not something I expected. And I said, what was going on there? Yeah. She says, you know, in retrospect, I think he was hoping for a quickie. <laughs> I just don't know, you know. <laughs> and I also remember her audition really well. It's so funny because that's exactly how she would phrase it. That's what yeah. she said to you. <laughs> yeah. Hoping for a quickie. Yeah. Boy, did he have the wrong number. But anyway. <laughs> But they were really, they were shooting the breeze. They were there and, and hanging out. But that happened a lot there, right, then? I mean, you got to hang yeah, out with everybody. Yeah, but Jane and Mick. Yeah. That's my point. Jane and Mick. <laughs> Didn't make sense. Yeah. No, but it was delightful. But you remember Jane's audition? Yeah. It was, um, Gilda and I were already hired, and they were having these auditions at this place called NOLA, which mm. was, and it was a big rehearsal space, and smack dab in the middle was a table and chair, which is the most brutal atmosphere for anybody. But he likes to do that, right? I mean, it's, he still does things kind of like that, even though you're in the studio. It doesn't make it comfortable, does he? I don't I mean, like ascribing a... motives to anybody because I can't read minds. So I don't know. Um, I well, think that I mean, that was from just... experience in retrospect of dealing with Lauren in that first season throughout it. Is it possible that he sought to make you uncomfortable during your audition? Yeah, I think the inclusion exclusion mm. business, um, you know, was a divide and conquer uh -huh. tactic in terms of sketch and that and in, in, in terms of uh, the harder people would work mm. in order to. Uh, rise above, you know, to, yeah, yeah. to achieve and get ahead. Right. So you created uh, a competitive environment. Yeah. It didn't have to be like that. There's right. such a thing as a happy set. Yeah. And it was happy just because we all love doing sketch. The right. work was fun. Yeah. But, you know, the struggle for airtime was tough on everybody, mm. you know, and I thought I was the only one, but everybody. You thought you were the only one during it? Yeah. And then you found out later that everybody was like, no, 
Yeah, oh. and I think, so Abel told me that Conan O'Brien said that his time there, he felt like every day was like getting beaten up on the playground. Bullies everywhere. Yeah, <laughs> I guess. And what was Jane's audition like? Why do you remember it? Well, it was, uh, she was hosting a disaster party. It was a town that had had every natural disaster imaginable. Uh-huh. And they were getting ready for another one. And she just had, like, talking to a group of women and what they brought to eat and all this kind of stuff. But it was so different. Did she come from comedy? Yeah, she came from The Proposition, which is a Boston improv group. No kidding. I don't even know that one. Yeah, we all came from improv. Yeah. It's interesting. I don't remember that. Having talked to all the comedy people I've talked to, I don't remember The Proposition ever coming up. Yeah. Who else was in that? Anyone we know? I don't know. Well, there you go. I just know that she came from there. Because there was another one on the West Coast called The Committee, right? I saw The Committee when I was a teenager. (laughs) I'd go (laughs) see them at the Tiffany Theater. So how did it end for you with SNL? Well, we are all under five-year contract, all of us. Yeah. And Lorne made it clear that he was leaving. And I, you know, didn't want to do it without him. How many seasons were you on? Five. We okay. all, the original cast did five seasons except for John and Danny, who left after the fourth, I think. The network approached all of us to see if we would stay on. Um, but I don't think anybody wanted to. And I think we were all burnt out. So what kind of shape were you in after the five years? Were you all fucked up? Yeah. I was really, uh, I was very eager to go home. What um, were we all fucked up on? What was the problem? I was big coke addict. Mm. And... um I had intermittent times of sobriety that I can't even explain. But when I got home, I was just, uh, I just wanted to hide. I just wanted to uh, not be in the world because the world was too painful. Um, But I was also doing stuff. You know, there was was a show at the Hollywood Roosevelt called the, oh my God, it was a political sketch review. Chris Guest was in it. Ed Bagley, I think Carl Gottlieb. Uh-huh. Um, I was in that show. The Hollywood Primary, that's what it was called. And um, there was also, I was doing ADR, which at the time I should have like maybe pulled back and thought, you're coming off of a hit show and you're doing work off camera for scale. What What's does that mean? wrong with this? ADR. Additional dialogue replacement. Right. Oh, so you would, oh, because I know that I go in and do it for things that I was in, but you, yeah. there's a well, general. This was looping. To, this was looping. This was. Like, uh, whose voice were you doing? It was filling in crowd stuff and, oh. and individual lines at point. But, you know, people there were like Harry Shearer yeah. and Rennie Santoni and uh, Ed Bagley. I mean, so the improvising that went on, which was totally unnecessary because it oh, yeah. was all going to be mixed down, but. My God, some of the stuff that went on was so funny. <laughs> Everybody was, was so... trying to pick up a paycheck? Is that what was yeah, going on? Yeah, because you get residuals for those. ADR is a great gig. So you're doing ADR, and you, how, did you have to quit, go to, get off the coke? I, you know, I held out for a long time. I didn't get sober till I was 35. So I came back from SNL. I was 28. Oh, man. So you were running around out here all jacked up? Yeah. Um, but I was one of those introvert coke people. You know, I would stay in my house and play solitaire and smoke. So it was like That's a riddle, what I did. did it work like Ritalin for you? It kind of did for me. Where it, like, it's if I exactly did it, what it did. Leveled me off. 
Absolutely. It calmed me down. It yeah, chilled yeah, me yeah. out. Made me think yeah. everything was okay. And exactly. then like three hours later, I, I was sure I was dying. So it was a yeah. small window. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the crash was awful. <laughs> Yeah. Awful, and I never drank alcohol. So oh, how'd you the come things, down? Uh, just I would read, read, and eat. Oh wow! That's what eating, I would do. Eating on coke, you're a professional. Well, uh, it had come, <laughs> you know, it worn off. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, but that yeah. crash is so awful, so Terrible. depressing. So looking back on it, I mean, do you like like people like Lauren? Because I was so, the last time I talked to you, I was you know obsessed with my meeting with Lauren, but we were able to resolve it through a couple of interviews I did with him. He walked me through it and uh, made me feel yeah, better. I heard that interview. It was terrific. <laughs> you did a great job with him. He was very patient with me. He, he was nice to like deal with my problem. I was very surprised, but he did. <laughs> That'll be $90, please. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, for lifting the obsession of me in the, on that day. But you had a good experience with him always? We were friends. Yeah. We were friends after the Lily show. And we were friends after SNL ended. Oh, yeah. Whenever he came to L.A., we'd get together. Oh, that's nice. Um, yeah. I, I really, I love Lorne. I still yeah. care about him very much, but I have absolutely no relationship with him. Yeah. But I will always care about him. It's weird how that happens, isn't it? Like you hold people yeah. in this place. And then yeah. you, know, you don't talk to him for a decade yet. You still like have those same feelings from that place. Yeah. What happened? Why, how come you guys don't talk? Well, I just think that um, his life has gotten so big, and he has only so much room for people. But it, it, what's interesting about Lauren that I found is that he's still wandering those same halls, doing that same fucking job, and he loves it, and it's what he does. He's a television producer. Yeah, he is, and I think that he really is inspired by. The talent. Yeah. I think he's genuinely inspired by it. Yeah. And it's like it's hit or miss, but sometimes it's really funny. Sometimes he's got funny, he's still got a good eye, you know, Absolutely. in terms of talent. And some people are allowed uh, to get their groove. I've seen some performers on the show and like they do one amazing thing. Yeah. And then I think, well, that's all they can do. And then they've gotten a little more time and you see this incredible range of things that they can do. And yeah. that takes, um, I don't even know how to describe what that takes, but the ability to wait them out, to allow them to grow or blossom. And it's so weird. It's like, now, you know, Keenan is like the old hand over there and he's, he's like got such a great attitude now. Like he just seems to give zero fucks and yeah. he's like, and it makes him so much funnier than he, he he's evolved. Oh, he's into... so good. But did yeah. you ever see him when he was a kid on all that? No. Oh, yeah. He was on a, a comedy show on Nick Nickelodeon when he was a kid. Uh -huh. And I remember thinking, God, he is so goddamn funny. It would be so great if someday he did SNL. And he did. I absolutely. I told him. I, I remember thinking that when I saw him because he was always so funny. I like that Chloe Feynman. Is that her name? Yeah, she's a groundling. She's terrific. She's good. So, you know, when we talked last, which was like, when was that? 2000 and... Yeah, it was at Sketchfest, but I don't yeah, remember. Yeah, it was a long time ago. But you said that uh, you were, you know, you were writing a book and it was in a drawer and you were never yes, going to finish it. Exactly. Did you finish uh, it? Why did you just do it on audio? Because you didn't finish it? No, that was the business model for Audible. And I did finish it. I had, Mark, I had so much material. And I wrote a lot of other stuff to avoid writing the book. Mm. 
and I wrote nine drafts of the book. And because I'm so disorganized, it was like, well, I know I have some good stuff in the seventh draft, but where is it? And I didn't have the patience to go through all of them. So I just kept getting disgusted each time and, and throwing it in a drawer. Right. But then Audible approached me. Uh-huh. And their business model was to do, quote unquote, humorous, you know, memoirs. So it was serious. And right. um, I had um, a fellow named Paul Slansky help me organize the ton of material I had. And he, he was like, um, he's very good with facts and dates and chronology, which is also a big weakness of mine. Yeah. So he helped me sort all that out. And he helped me basically with, oh, you don't need that. Yeah, right. Yeah, that nobody needs to know that. <laughs> oh, yeah, like yeah. what? Oh, uh, well, I mean, it's you don't need that because it's boring, probably. Oh. But honestly, I don't remember. Did you have to take stuff out because of, like, where he's, was he concerned? Is like, well, if you say this about this person, you know that person. Liability. Yeah. Was there some of that? Well, Audible is pretty much covers that. You know, uh, when you hand in the copy edited, um, there's, you know, and fact checked version, yeah. then they, it goes through legal. Yeah. So I had to reword things like, you know, say, I felt this or I believed this oh, rather okay. than saying that something was an empirical fact. Mm. Um, but I mean, again, interesting times when I was, um, you know, with Mark, we used to go, Mark Mothersbaugh, we would go to the Larry Flint mansion uh, for parties, which I soon got tired of because I thought it was kind of depressing. But I remember Larry Flint being obsessed with Madeline Murray O'Hare and the atheist movement. Mm. And he would talk about these conspiracies and he would send me and Mark home with these cassettes and Uh. videotapes to watch, Uh. you know. Right. Nobody likes homework. But no, the point is that, you know, uh, there's just all sorts of things that I was exposed to. Isn't that weird fucking, isn't Hollywood bizarre, man? Yeah, yeah. So you it just really like you're is. with Mark Mothersbaugh at Larry Flint's house, and he's holding court from his wheelchair and and going on about atheists and wants you to watch videos, and you've got to sit there. Were there drugs involved? Because how did you sit through that? Not at that time, no. But it was such a Hollywood thing in my mind, where you just end up at these houses with these people that can only hang out with each other because they can't go out into the real world. Yeah. So there's always weird pairings of people. Around. Yes. That's exactly, that is a great way of putting it. (laughs) You're at these parties going like, why is Lance Armstrong and Ted Nugent here? You know, it's like, where else are they (laughs) going to go? This is the only, one time I saw, like, it was like at the comedy store in Mitzi's booth. It was Rodney Dangerfield, Bruce Willis, and Ted Nugent sitting there watching the show. Out of here. I remember you talking about that. That's an amazing confluence of human well, it's just because they were there the same night it was before ted became whatever he represents now he was always kind of a fucking monster but he wasn't a political monster but uh mm. but yeah and then someone brought it to my attention with i think it was jeffrey uh jeff Kahn. like he said he'd go to these parties at stiller's house and you just see these people together where you there was no reason for them to be together other than they're all at a level of celebrity to where they can't really socialize like normal people well i remember um Alan Bursky. Do you remember him? He was like an 18-year-old stand-up. I know Bursky. I interviewed him. I talked to Bursky. Well, I knew him when he was 18. Okay. Oh, you did? When you, God, well, you were in high school? 
Now I was a little bit old. I'm a little older than him, actually. When his dad was parking cars in the lot of the comedy store, when Sammy still had it, or when yeah. he was just when he was right. doing stand up there, as yeah, you yeah. know, even though I was too young to get in, but um, I, I for some reason he I saw him after SNL, and I was you know, talking about how tough it was for me. And he said, well, I, I know a friend, I, I know a guy who's a manager. Yeah. Maybe you should meet with him. So yeah. he takes me up to meet this guy. And we're we're driving, and then we passed a street sign that says Cielo Drive. Yeah. And I'm thinking, God, this looks familiar. And Jesus, this house looks familiar. Yeah. And it was the scene of the Manson murders. Oh. It was the house. And this guy still, Rudy Altapelli, unbelievably horrible human being who sued Roman Polanski because he couldn't sell his house because Polanski too many took too many pictures of the house. What? I mean, just odious That creature. was where the, the take killing was? Yes. The meeting was at the house. So it's always, there's always a connection of some kind. That's true. In one way or another. It's like whoever I met, whoever I went to high school with, yeah. Whoever I uh, met at CalArts, Paul Rubens, whoever I met at the Groundlings, whoever I met on SNL, whoever I met subsequent to that because of the relationships I had, uh, then starting into animation, yeah. some people who had been actors but were got into animation or people who were just the cream of the crop of animation actors. You know, and again, there I was at the beginning of this explosion because animation is so huge now. Yeah. But I was there when that just was starting. You know, so I got to, I was working on the Pixar movies and I remember we were working on Finding Nemo and I can't remember, it might have been, it wasn't Lassiter, it was someone else, but he was talking about the how they had just gotten the technology to animate the look of particles just filtering through light coming through the ocean. Mm. Do you know what I mean? When yeah. you see a beam of light going yeah, into the yeah, ocean yeah. and all the krill, I think they're called, yeah. just filtering through that. They had just developed the technology to animate something like that. Right. And of course, you know, there are leaps and bounds from that now. But it just, it was such a fascinating, it is such a fascinating medium. And also, you, I think you can have a lot, like, if you're dug in in that world, you can have a, you know, there's no end to your career, really, because it's just a matter of Well, voice. I've been very lucky, i got to say. I, I thank my lucky stars every day because, you know, all during the <laughs> pandemic, I've been able to work. What have you been working yeah. on? Well, uh, let's see. Um, there's a show, I think it's been announced, but it's going to be on Netflix. It's called Ridley Jones, and it's kind of like uh, Night at the Museum with a, a young girl. And it's written by Chris Nee, who created two other series that I worked on that are like Peabody award-winning shows. And you meet a lot of people in animation. I mean, you know, uh, the show I'm working on now, uh, Rhea Seahorn is working on it. No, she's and, great. Uh, Blythe Danner and just incredible people. It's so funny. I, 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 the, I had this realization about animation. There was this comic that was just a, just like this monster. Like he was, uh, you know, drugs and booze and weird and just fucking creepy. And his name is? <laughs> Chris, Chris Collins. He's dead. Oh, I don't know him. But years ago, I just remember that he had, you know, found some, not, he, he was around doing comedy, but he was just too weird and too, uh, but he had found some success doing cartoons. And I'm like, I always thought like, if only those parents knew. Who was, <laughs> 
who, oh my God. who was talking for that animal. <laughs> well, Frank Welker uh, mm. is really like the Mel Blanc of his era. I mean, his his IMDb page is, is pages and pages. I mean, he's done everything you've ever seen as a child. Mm. And he used to do stand-up. And Steve Martin told me about seeing Frank do sound effects of a mother duck crossing a stream. The sound of the ducklings, the sound of the duck, and the sound of the stream. Wow. You know, these guys, guys have incredible skills. Yeah. There was a, a weird comic named Barry Nightcrew. I don't know what happened to him. That He used to do like some very odd noises. What a great name. It's a great name. He was an interesting guy. He's a... A musician who didn't, I don't remember. Mara's brother was a concert pianist. There's always these weird stories, of, you know. Where did you see these people? All at the Genius comedy store? Pro- Chris Collins, those, Barry Nycrew and Chris Collins were both Boston guys. I started doing comedy in Boston after after college oh. and during college. So, Did they, you know Dana Gould? Yes. I was there wow. when Dana left. I was there probably the year before. I saw Dana maybe a, like right before he moved to San Francisco. So when he was pretty young, wow. and I saw Bobcat, uh, he I was there. Bobcat, and Tom Kenny, Bob Must and Tom, Tom yeah. Kenny. I see. You see Tomcat and Bobcat. Bobcat had a garage sale at a comedy store at a comedy club <laughs> called Stitches, where before he moved to uh, San Francisco, they all went to San Francisco. Paul Poundstone went to San Francisco. Kevin Meany went to San Francisco. A lot wow. of the Boston people that needed a more embracing environment before they came to L.A. Uh, went to San Francisco. God, Kevin Meany. Yeah, he was a Boston guy. I remember seeing him. What sweating. kind of person does that? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's so funny. You can see the spirit of him. in cert- There's certain moments in that Gaffigan has that are very Kevin Meany. Yes. Yeah. Oh, my God. I never put that together. Where he's like, I don't know. Where he talks like. Well, when know. he does the audience, someone, a woman in the audience. Yeah. The, 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 the quiet, the, the other voice. The, I don't the, think that's very funny. Right, right, right. That's, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love yeah. that. It's very Kevin, Well, didn't right? Fran Solomita did a. Um, yeah, I think you hear me not. A documentary on the Boston. I remember Fran. Like I used yeah. to see him when I was in college. I saw Fran. I saw Zito and Bean. I saw Ron Lynch. Ron Lynch was Ron in a Lynch. Ron oh Lynch was God. in a team called Bob and Ron when I first saw them. What happened yeah. to Bob? God, ask ask Ron. What happened to Ron? He's around, uh, Ron, I think. Yeah, yeah he's Ron still is, is a lot of times on at Sketchfest, but he's so funny. Yeah, Ron's great. Right. Ron was a big influence on a lot of people. Like they like yeah, I I mean Ron was always there. Uh he was a Boston guy. There's yeah, it's it, I mean you must do it too when you think back on all the people. You knew, oh and, my like, God. and then some yes. people you're like, what happened to that guy? I remember going to see a friend of mine named Joey Arias, who was a very well-known drag queen, mm. and he was a groundling. He was there in the very beginning. So I went to see him, I think, at the Catalina Club, and I saw Bruce Valanche. And I was you know, in the midst of writing my book, and I remember seeing this wonderful Australian impressionist, a woman named Daphne Davis, and I thought, he'll know. Not only did he know her, he wrote for her. Wow. Yeah. Valanche was, did. Valanche did, yeah. After you get to a certain point in your life, you live so many lives in so many different places. Exactly. Became, That's what it is. So many lives. Yeah. When people come up to you, they're like, hey, do you remember me? I'm like, you're going to have to give me a, a, a span of years <laughs> and a city. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> do you remember Falstaff Wild? No. You probably never saw him. He was the first openly gay comic I ever saw, and he was at the comedy store. 
And he would come see Groundling shows all the time. God bless him. And like, when did you get married and have kids in the middle of all this? Did you, you were sober? Oh, yeah. My kids yeah. have never known me high. Cokey? No. God bless them. Oh, my God. I just can't even imagine parenting and being. I'm so lucky. Yeah. I have to say, because I, you know, of all the things I've had to live down, yeah. I don't have to live that down. Right. You know? You didn't do that. You didn't make that mistake. Yeah. In 89, I got together with Chad. And uh, yeah, 25 years. Are you guys friends? Is this ending nicely? We're really good friends. Yeah. And he's remarried and his wife is incredible. And I love her. And yeah. And very civilized. Me? Me? Oh, you see, Mark, the Uh store is closed here. (laughs) It's finished, (laughs) is what I'm saying. Is it? It is. I can't even imagine. <laughs> I can't imagine intimacy at this point. It's just horrifying, the thought. Well, it's weird, though, because, I, I mean, I understand what you're saying, but it's what, the other thing about as you get older, though, is that, uh, you know, there are certain things you just can't hide. So there's a lot of stuff that's already out of the bag. You know what I mean? Oh, so yeah. on, on some level, intimacy, it's already happening whether you want it to or not, because we don't have control over, you know, I never process. thought of it that way. Do you know what I mean? I mean... Really, that's just an interesting be- perspective. Because, like, on some level, it, it's sort of like you know, you may not want to take an emotional risk, but most of who you are is sort of, you know, you're not hiding that much anymore. You, who has that kind of energy? But it's really just a matter of attachment, you know. Well, I also think if you get older, you're not as invested in um, being anything other than you are. Right. Right, because yeah, so many, so much shit that used to feel important or used to seem like you needed to do. Just, you know, who gives a fuck? Yeah, you better right? like me. This is it. Yeah, this is this is what we're I'm dealing with. Gonna, I'm not you worrying know. about best foot forward. Okay. Yeah, and it's just sort of like, do you like you know the the whole thing about like you know, like you you start to understand why people who've been together a long time sleep in separate rooms. It's not a matter of of like anything other than like, I just want to have some space, you know? Yeah, (laughs) you make noises and you read and the light bothers me. Yeah, I I just, you know, Jane Curtin has been married this whole time and her husband is fantastic. Yeah. I really admire that. Where do they, they live out here too? They live in Connecticut. Of course. I've just been emailing with her, which has been really fun. That's great. We we uh, Bill Murray, you know, was honored at the Kennedy Center, and he flew me out there and put me up at the Four Seasons, and uh-huh. so I got to go, you know, and I met uh, Sonia Sotomayor, and you know, it was very exciting. And um, the afterwards, it was very very cold, and Jane and I were going from the venue to the party tent, mm-hmm. and there were these. Um, fans that wanted a picture with her and an autograph and she mm. says i don't do that i don't do that and it was like please miss Curtin, please we've been waiting out in the cold for so long and she was like i don't care i don't care i don't care you know and i was like my hat is off to you my hat is off to you you are my queen oh god i loved her for that uh how long ago was that that was a couple years ago maybe two three years ago and how long has it been since Gilda's been gone? A long time. Huh? Oh, God. 89. My mother died uh, two months after Gilda. That's a bad year. Yeah. It was bad. Did you love her? Oh, yeah. She was a really great friend to me. And very mothery. Mm. Mothering. 
yeah. to me. Um, I often don't even understand why she was so good to me because I was so self-centered and self-involved. Mm. Uh, but she was so attentive and kind and loving. Yeah. Were you friends with Gene? No. Mm. I met him once, I think. He seems like a sweetheart, too. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> I know nothing. I say nothing. Okay. Well, look, it was great seeing you. You great too, man. To you. I hope I can see you again sometime. I'm around. You know, out in the world. Sure. I mean, oh, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not going on your end of town. Yeah, I guess. That's I'm too not, far. I don't go to your end of town either. Maybe I'll meet you somewhere in the middle at some point. Okay. Maybe I'll see you at a thing when we can have things again. Yeah. Yeah, that would be fun. Maybe in Sketchfest. Yeah, I haven't been up there in a while. I haven't done Sketchfest in a while. I don't remember why I stopped doing it. I tend to not go to festivals because I'm like, why? Why? I'll just go. If I want to go to San Francisco and play San Francisco, I'll just go do it when there's not a million other acts up there. But like, I go because I love seeing those acts. No, I know. That's what people, yeah, people are like, we get to see everybody. I'm like, no, nah, I don't know. I, I can see but it also can sometimes end up in a collaboration. It's like Coachella. You know, a lot of times artists you, you meet say, each other. Like, maybe I'm going to jam with Mike Birbiglia. <laughs> I'm just gonna... That's right, man. Yeah. <laughs> Michael Ian Black and I have this yeah, uh, set yeah. we want to do. Exactly. Yeah. I'm a solo act, baby. But yeah, <laughs> okay. but no, but maybe I'll go back up there. I mean, I, I but I, you know, I, I like seeing you. I'm glad you're doing all right, and glad that you got the book out and in the world. And it's only yeah, in it audio. It should be really entertaining. It should be very entertaining. I hope I'll bring it with me on my hike. Okay, that's the perfect spot. All right, Lorraine, take it easy. Okay, bye. Okay, Lorraine Newman and her voices and her nice disposition. And her new book called May You Live in Interesting Times. It's available exclusively on Audible as an audiobook. So go to audible.com or the Audible app to check it out. Damn, my voice is good today. It's a meditation. It's making me dream deeper. I think something's happening. All right? Something is happening. I mean, I'm levitating right now. Is that normal? No. Watch. I'm just going to float over here and pick up my guitar.
soaring into the forever. Thank <laughs> you.